everyone perceives the world in a slightly different way. The reason science is so important is it gives us a way to sort of overcome, you know, that diversity by saying, okay, we're going to agree to some rules of evidence. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Dr. Campbell is a brain doctor, you're not your doctor. So we always <laughs> recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. Dr. Campbell, I am so excited that you're here. I love that your background includes different elements of science, and I think it explains a lot of your expertise into our human beings' physical inner workings and the neuroscience of it all. So just a little background listeners on, it's okay if I call you Ginger. Okay. On Ginger's like background, prior to medical school, she studied electrical and biomedical engineering and then went on to complete her medical training. Dr. Campbell spent over 20 years as an emergency, phys- emergency room physician and in 2014 began a fellowship in palliative medicine, which is now what she practices, the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Birmingham, Alabama, but is headed to New Zealand soon. So I'm excited to let her share a little bit about that with you listeners, and still enjoys both patient care and teaching residents, fellows, and medical students. She is best known for her science-oriented podcasts, books, and ideas, as well as brain science, and her newly recently launched Graying Rainbows, a podcast about coming out later in life. And her book, Are You Sure the Unconscious Origins of Certainty, is based on episodes of Brain Science Podcast exploring the implications of the surprising discovery that most of what our brain does is hidden from our awareness. And you can follow her and sign up for her newsletter at virginiacampbellmd.com, where you can find access to all of those things. And today we are going to dive into brain health because I am a geek about brain health. But before we do all of that, can you tell us a little more about yourself and introduce listeners to who you are? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I really need to say is I'm not a neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon. I mean, it's amazing how many of my podcasting friends think of me as a neurosurgeon. I am, you know, a person with a science background who became passionate about neuroscience about 10 years, no, 20 years ago, actually. Yeah, I've been doing my show, Brain Science, for almost 17 years. So, My inspiration was that I was reading about the brain and discovering all this neat stuff. And then I would see discussions. This was back when discussion forums were popular before Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And people were back in (laughs) pre-iPhone. And they, there was just so, there's so much misinformation and mainstream media perpetuates a lot of the misinformation. And I just really wanted to do a show that was about what, what the actual science is and 
make it accessible to people of all backgrounds. And so that's what I've been doing for a long time. And I've been really surprised by listeners who write to me that are having various mental health or neurological challenges that tell me that the show is helpful to them. And the reason this surprises me is that my show is not clinical. I rarely talk about diseases. I mean, once in a while, I mean, I've had Temple Grandin on the show, but mostly I talk about more basic science stuff. But what I learned from my listeners is that just understanding a little bit about how it works is very empowering to everyone. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think education is the key to everything in life. And so I'm excited that you're here to kind of share some of that wisdom with us today. And in preparing for the show, you and I were discussing lots of ideas, mostly because we're both geeks about this topic, I think. And I mentioned to you before we started the show, have a very neurodiverse house. I have ADHD, AD, and ASD in my home, as well as PTSD. And for listeners, if you don't know what all those initials are, that's okay. But it means that brain function is really important to my ability to be a good parent or a good partner. Like I need to understand that somebody else's brain doesn't work the same way as mine. And that doesn't mean that they're not capable of a lot of things, just it looks different than how mine looks, you know, my actions or thought process might be. And so I thought maybe we could just start with an overview of some brain basics, like what is it truly doing for us? You know, we hear so often that there are portions of our brain that we're not accessing and like these kinds of things. And I think to your point, a lot of us are just like, what is going on up in my head? (laughs) How is it working? So maybe you could just give like a little overview to lay the groundwork for us. Okay. So, I mean, One of the things is that when you hear about the brain on, you know, TV and magazines, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, where in your brain certain things happen. And, you know, that's kind of an oversimplified view of what's really going on. Because although in the 1800s, we started to discover that, you know, brain damage to certain places caused certain problems like language loss and whatnot. In modern times, we now know that, you know, all the different parts of the brain talk to each other. So it's more of a network. It's more like the internet, okay? So it's not that one particular place does a certain thing. So, for example, you might have heard the amygdala. That's where fear happens. Well, not really. I mean, the amygdala actually does a lot of stuff. It actually is involved in decision-making. It's involved in saying to you, hey, pay attention to this. It might be important to your survival, but it's not the whole thing. So what I oftentimes say on my show is it's where is the wrong question, okay? It's more about who's talking to who. So if you hear someone say, this part of your brain does X, you know, stop and ask, is that true? Now, There are places where that's more or less true, like the sensory parts of the brain, right? Where like, say, vision is being processed. But then there are a lot of association areas where everything has to come together. Okay, so that's the first principle is that it's an oversimplification to ever say this part of your brain, unless it's, you know, this is your visual part. But if it's emotions or something, it doesn't come down to just one part. And 
Last month, I had an, a great guest on who has a new book out that I highly recommend. His name is Luis Pessoa, and his book is called The Entangled Brain. It's a really good overview of the difference between when we study the brain and we break it down into parts, and then what happens when we realize that the parts really talk to each other. And that book is actually intended for a main, you know, a, a general audience. It's not a book for scientists. So that's one I would highly recommend if you want to get a better feel for this. Pessoa was on my show maybe 10 years ago talking about all the stuff the amygdala actually does. And that was the first time I was really aware of this fact that these lower parts of the brain that we might be told only do this or that, it's not true. And just throw away the limbic system, okay? And this whole idea that you've got a reptile brain, that's all outdated. <laughs> Hate to throw water on the on that, but, you know, because therapists love, oh, it, you're, it's your reptile brain and blah. I mean, it's just not true because from the very lowest levels of the brain, emotion and what we you might think of as logic or, you know, decision making, they're intertwined. So it's not like emotion is over here and thinking is over there, like the old, you know, Greek image of the um, the guy trying to, you know, the chariot rider, you know, that image of the chariot rider where the horses were supposed to be your emotions and your reason was supposed to be the guy on the chariot. Okay, that's a really long, you know, a really long-standing idea. But the latest thing really shows that all that stuff mixes together. And so you see this when you see if you have a person in, who has PTSD, right? That you see how deeply emotions and reasoning cannot be separated, right? So the other thing I would say, just as a starting point, is that since you mentioned my book about how much the brain does that's unconscious, I would say that I am not talking about the Freudian unconscious, okay? And I'm not talking about, oh, your unconscious is controlling your activities. That's not what I'm saying at all. We still have a good deal of control. What I am talking about when I say most of what the brain does is unconscious, I'm talking about the, the processing. For example, visual illusions, right? You can look at a visual illusion, and even if you know it's a visual illusion, you still see it, right? And that's, the re and that's because that processing of the visual, the thing you're seeing, is happening before it gets to your conscious awareness. So you can't make it not a visual illusion because you don't have access to the circuitry that's creating the visual illusion, which brings us to a very basic point that you sort of alluded to at the very beginning, which is, you know, our brain, it creates our experience. And that means that my experience is different from your experience. You know, even if we're looking at the same thing, we aren't actually seeing exactly the same thing, right? And to me, that's the biggest lesson I've learned because as a physician, I realize that sometimes my patients and I are not perceiving the world in the same way. In fact, often we are not perceiving the world in the same way. And if when someone asks me, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from doing this neuroscience for all these years, that is it. Realizing that everyone perceives the world in a slightly different way. The reason science is so important is it gives us a way to sort of overcome, you know, that diversity by saying, 
okay, we're going to agree to some rules of evidence so we can say, it seems like this, but maybe our intuition is wrong. How can we test it? And then we agree on what the rules are, right, for testing something to come up with something. It's not, you know, the ultimate truth, but it's closer than what any of us can get to just using, you know, what seems to be true to us. I think that is really helpful for a lot of people to kind of understand. And what came to mind for me when you were talking about it is the viral image that went around the internet a couple of years ago. And it was like, what color is the dress? Right. And right. People, that people, was a famous one. Yeah. Yes. And people were like, how could you not see exactly what I'm seeing? And helping, I was kind of the first time that I heard as a you know, community conscious kind of thing, recognizing that our brain works different than the next person's brain. The phrase that we use a lot of times because we're a treatment foster family and we work with children who have PTSD. And so the analysis that I find works really well for them is what does it mean to you when I say a dill chip? And a lot of people will say, oh, you mean like a potato chip. And I'm like, but what if I was referring to slices of pickle? Because that's Mm -hmm. also called a dill chip. And they're two very different things. So if someone goes into the kitchen and says, can you get me a dill chip? And I come back and I give you pickle instead of a potato chip. That can often be a misunderstanding in communication and how our brain processes things. And in everyday life, that's like an example that at least children often find like they have an aha moment. With right. And if we go to New Zealand, then chips are French fries. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think I am interested in talking more about the amygdala. I know you mentioned that when you were kind of going over things and because of the trauma trainings that I've taken, it is definitely a central focus in what we learn in terms of, you know, how, especially in children, the brain develops based on the how the amygdala is triggered. So can you talk a little more about what you found to be relevant in both the work that you do and the ER? I'm sure lots of people, including yourself, have been through trauma just being in the ER, but then also in the studies that you do on the brain. Well, you know, the thing is, these studies are done at very different levels. And so there are people, not me, but researchers working on on the fear conditioning that involves the amygdala. And they're doing a lot of, you know, very promising work. You know, they work a lot with mice and rats, and they're doing a lot of very promising work that looks like it can be reprogrammed, you might say, so that things that were once very, that triggered a very traumatic, you know, effect are almost like forgotten. I mean, it's like, and it's not my area of research. So all I can say is that there's very promising work being done in this field. So I don't want to say, oh, the amygdala doesn't matter. But I do think it's important, you know, just to put it into the perspective of, you know, it's not the whole picture. I mean, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the best validated mental health treatment method that we currently have does not depend on trying to target a part of your brain, right? It depends on teaching you to think differently and say, okay, when this happens and I feel this way, 
I can teach myself to say, I have some control. I, you know, I, you don't have control of your initial emotion, right? But then you can look at how you're feeling. And this is true for people even who are neuro, neurotypical. Anybody who's tried to meditate knows that, you know, thoughts pop in and then you can decide whether you're following them off or not. So cognitive behavioral therapy is about teaching people, you know, the idea of reframing, which is, okay, I know that this thing is a trigger for my trauma, but I know that now I'm in a safe place. I can move forward. And I think this is very important because it says you are not helpless. You are not helpless. You are not a victim of your brain. This is, I think, the most important thing I would say to anyone who is facing a mental health challenge. I mean, some of the imagery that we currently use is actually disempowering because if you think that what you have is a brain disease, right? It makes it sound like it's something you have no control over. And there are brain diseases you have no control over. Like if you have Alzheimer's disease, you can't control the fact that your brain's degenerating. If you have Parkinson's disease, you can't control that. But if you have an addiction problem, it's changed your brain, but you do still have choice and you can make choices to make things better. So it's important not to, con you know, conflate the ideas. If, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you, each one of us has a legacy of whatever our brains have done in the past. And unfortunately, you know, I'm sure many of your kids have, you know, traumatic legacies that they have to overcome and they have to have loving support to do that. But the key idea is they can. I mean, that's what to me is so inspiring about Temple Grandin's story, right? Her mom was stubborn. Her mom was sa said, she's not going, you know, to be disabled. She can do these things. And I mean, it was hard, right? But, you know, she's, even though she's autistic, she's incredibly smart and has made the most of her gifts. And, and, and that's all that any of us can do is try to make the most of whatever our gifts happen to be and, you know, turn our challenges into something like, like what you're doing, your situation, you're, you're turning your challenges into a way of helping others. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. The award-winning brand now has the tastiest way to take your probiotics, gummies, designed for the whole family, but still clinically proven effective. In fact, Just Thrive is the only product on the market with numerous peer-reviewed studies and clinical trials showing that their probiotic reduce leaky gut and inflammation. The formula is groundbreaking in its effectiveness, guaranteed to arrive 100% alive in your gut and has a thousand time better survivability than leading probiotics. Wesley recently shared more about his journey on the autism spectrum and that he was physically uncomfortable with bloating and gas. In fact, according to NIH's library, a study showed that the abundance of intestinal flora was greatly different in children on the spectrum. And recent studies suggest that microbiota change in children with ASD after the ingestion of probiotics and may improve the balance of microbiota, thus improving ASD symptoms. 
because I take this probiotic every day and love it and recommend it to all my skincare clients who tell me how effective and helpful it is for them. And because your gut health impacts literally everything, your well-being, your mood, your digestion. I had Wesley start taking it daily too, and you heard it from him directly. He is feeling much better taking his daily Just Thrive probiotic. If you missed episode 54 with their founder, I highly recommend it, not just to nerd out on gut health science, but also we did a deep dive into how probiotics have been shown in science to bind to heavy metals and provide antioxidant protection as well. Plus, Just Thrive is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. To try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code WHOLEVIEW. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com slash discount slash WHOLEVIEW with code WHOLEVIEW. Yeah, and I think the image that came to my mind when you were talking about it. So if, you know, and the training that I've taken, if we think about the amygdala as kind of the, the initial intake of the brain, like it's, you're mm-hmm. in the ER room, it's the triage, right? And so it's going to process things that are fear inducing or that feel threatening. And it's going to kind of detect threats and activate other parts of our body to be in that, what, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of as like the flight or fight Mm -hmm. mode, right? There's also freeze in that, that I think a lot of people, it's flight, fight or freeze. (laughs) And when we're in that state, it is impossible to do the remapping, right? If you're frozen, your brain is not open to remapping of, okay, but you're actually safe right now because it's currently telling you, no, you're not, no, you're not. So it really is like CBT. DBT, all these other kinds of things that are available. I mean, when I was a teenager in therapy, because I had depression, because I had anxiety and eating disorder and these kinds of things, like there was no, there was talk therapy, but it was like, and now take this pill. There was no like, let us figure out how to, you know, reframe some of these thoughts or different things that you have that you know, we have a lot more, it's incredible, the growth that we've had in, you know, that 30 years or whatever. And then if we think about 30 years before that, we were still like using leeches for medicine. And (laughs) it's incredible how far we've come in a short amount of time. But that said, it really also depends on these neural pathways that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Like, so when we experience these immediate threats or fears, how did our body learn to respond to keep itself safe? And I think that's when you were talking, I was envisioning the Grand Canyon and how the pathway of the Colorado River has created that pathway in the earth for so long at such a strong pace. And for some people, you know, we look at trauma, for example, veterans coming back from war if they've experienced nonstop, you know, repeated over and over again, that river made a very deep, you know, path that is hard to reframe. It's not impossible. Right. You know, Norman George, who was, who's been very helpful in making people aware of brain plasticity, calls this the dark side of neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. because you get into these ruts 
And obviously the Grand Canyon is an analogy for a very deep rut. And I don't mean to sound, I don't want to sound like I'm discounting, you know, the, the, the challenge of those ruts. I just want to, you know, like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a neurologist. I don't take care of patients with these challenges. So I'm coming into it from a basic science standpoint. And I'm just trying to say that there's hope. That I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that the science does not say that you are hardwired. The science does not say that since this happened to you, you have to be stuck in this, you know, rut forever. It's going to be challenging, especially, you know, depending on, you know, what happened. And I mean, the veterans with PTSD are certainly a very good example of a very challenging situation that usually requires using a combination of therapy and drugs. But, you know, the hope that brain plasticity also gives us, though, is that our brain continues to change throughout our lives. And, you know, I think of the the triggering of the amygdala being a person who's fortunate I haven't had trauma. So I think of, you know, like when you see a, a stick and you at first you think it's a snake, okay? That's amygdala too, right? And then you process the information and you realize it's a stick. But there's a moment in there, even if you're not having any bad experiences with snakes, when you have this moment of fear of, oh my God, it's a snake, right? So, I mean, that's, you know, I've mentioned this because that is the, the normal response. The reason why our amygdala does what it does is to make sure that we pay attention right away. And the people who had that trigger, you know, had kids. And so we have inherited that tendency. And then, you know, but if you get, like you said, into that Grand Canyon rut of going down a deep hole every time something happens. And I have a niece who has severe anxiety disorder. And, you know, I don't, I'm just trying to sort of get her interested in, you know, trying meditation because right now she's just, oh, I don't feel good. I'm going to go hide in the bedroom. So it's, I can't, I have immense respect for what you do. Well, thanks. And I mean, we're, I think we're all doing it, right? And I think to the credit of listeners as well, gives us an opportunity to be open to understanding where someone else's mindset might be. I know for me, I went from being a very assumptive, judgmental person, not about children, but, you know, later in life, I just I kind of assumed the worst of a lot of people and learning more about the brain and how we develop these neural pathways. We develop these maladaptive coping skills because of what we were exposed to. And it, I think when we say trauma, for me, I think everyone has their own trauma. You said you didn't have trauma. And I think, you know, that doesn't mean that you didn't have a family that loved you or whatever preconceived notions might be. We've all been, you know, whether it be a car accident, whether it be, you know, there's some things that happen in our life where I kind of look back on and I'm like, I did have an exposure to a snake. This is like such a side tangent, but it created like I literally have PTSD and trauma with snakes. And even though I think they're really super cool creatures, they do great things for the earth. I want them to be around. I am deathly afraid of them. And anytime that there is a belt on the floor in my house, I literally jump and scream. Mm. And my kids think that I'm creating this like 
over-the-top reaction for attention. And I'm like, I genuinely thought that was a snake and that it was going to hurt me. And so I think it's fair to say that was a trauma simply because it created a pathway in my head. My amygdala saw something as a threat. And then I created a pathway in my head that said, that snake crawled between your legs when you were going up the stairs and something really bad could have happened. And now you're going to be really scared of it. And so for me, it's interesting when we think of on a greater community level is how, you know, it fascinates me so much, not just from the neurodiversity that we spoke about at the beginning and how, you know, diverse my family is and my interest there, but I've also been thinking about it a lot in terms of the past few years with how divisive the world has become and how different our lives are if we have access to information, if our feelings are validated, how that creates different pathways in our brain versus feeling like the world is against us and we have to protect ourselves. And all of that is stuff that our brain is doing for us. And to your point, we have the ability to stop that, to say, that's not actually a fact. No one is out to get me personally, you know, our whatever the situation might be, right? And and a lot of the work that we do, you know, it's like, okay, create an anchor, remind yourself where you are right now versus where you were then. Are you actually safe? Like all these kinds of things that we're doing. Like we as adults can do that too. And I'm curious if in the work that you've done both with listeners on your podcast and as a physician in an emergency room, how you see that different level of people operating in basic need mode versus people operating in that higher level of self-awareness mode is kind of how I, as how I define it, right? Yeah. So, um, in the emergency room and in the work I do now, people are usually not in the, in the best place. And so I, I think that expecting a person who's in a severe stress position, either facing a life-threatening illness or thinking that they are, you have to try to meet them where they are. So for me, the first point is always trying to figure out what is the thing that they are afraid of that I can address and trying to anticipate what they would want to ask, even though they're not asking it. And, you know, I don't know that I'm always successful, but that's what I try to do. Yeah, I mean, that's not a situation, either the ER or the palliative medicine situation is a situation where you're going to expect people to, you know, be able to do a, oh, let's reframe this, you know, kind of thing. I mean, people go into their, like, if a loved one's dying, what they believe about that is what they believe about it. And you have to deal with them from where they are. And so the advantage of realizing that each of us has a perspective that's in some ways equally valid and in some ways equally wrong, we can all be wrong. What I hope is that it would make me more tolerant. And one of the things I, and that's one of the points of my book, Are Are You Sure?, is that if we real, one of the things that our brain does unconsciously that we don't know is we don't really choose what we believe. I mean, you can justify what you believe, but what you believe has really been processed 
by your brain taking everything together and coming up with, aha, this is where I am now. And if you remember that, then, you know, that's why when you throw facts at somebody, it doesn't change their position, right? Everybody's experienced that. So once we understand that, hopefully we can be a little bit more tolerant both toward ourselves and toward others. You know, they might change their mind in the future, but they're not changing their mind right now. So beating, you know, beating them up about it or, you know, or even just saying that person is bad because they believe different from me. I mean, that's what we see going on that's dividing our country so badly is everybody is saying on both sides, if you don't believe the same thing as me, you are bad. And of course, there are forces driving that and manipulating, you know, our survival instincts. And so that's another key reason why I want people to have a better understanding of neuroscience, because I think maybe you won't be, you can recognize these manipulations like fear, right? You know, politicians, you know, dividing people by using fear, even making them afraid of things that aren't even really going on. Yeah, so true. And I think it reminded me of how Brene Brown phrases it, which is she says, what's the story that you're telling yourself, right? Like we could both hear the same thing and my interpretation of what you're saying versus yours could be very different. And so being able to sometimes catch yourself or help someone else if you realize like, oh, you're talking to someone and everything's going great. And then all of a sudden you see their body language change. And their, you know, eyes glaze over and they're going someplace else, right? They're, they're tuning out to something that felt unsafe to them instead of my previous response to something like that would have been to get defensive myself. Like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, you know, I didn't make you do whatever. And so now my response is like, hey, I see that something just happened. Like, can you help me understand what just happened? And oftentimes that leads to asking the question, like, what's the story that you're telling yourself about what I just said? Because my intention was X. Clearly, I didn't communicate that properly. Right. And during COVID, I mean, you know, communication is such a big part of palliative medicine. And I can tell you that during COVID, the mask, I mean, and trying to have conversations and tell whether people, you know, trying to tell whether you're really, you know, you for it made me really appreciate how much information is in the whole face because just having someone's eyes is not enough, you know? And so we were having difficult conversations with people and having sometimes very challenging to know whether we were connecting or not. In some ways, it was one of the hardest things. And I think everyone learned something from COVID. And one of those, if you didn't already know about, it is, you know, we're wired to be social, right? We're wired to be social. And so, you know, kids that were not going to school, even though they didn't think they liked school, were, you know, miserable. And because they, you know, underestimate the importance of just being with other people. I was so grateful that I had a job where most of the time I still went to the hospital, masks anyway, (laughs) despite the masks and that. But also how stressful that job was for so many people who had, like my husband was an essential worker. It was this duality of, yes, I'm grateful that I get outside of the house and that, you know, I'm around people, but also 
to medical professionals, especially like the risk and stress of that and dealing with, you know, people who are dying or, you know, different kinds of things was its own. Again, I would argue trauma for you and for all medical professionals, right? Like that's something you, yeah, you know, about. ironically, I think it was harder on the non-palliative doctors, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they're not, they're used to the idea that their patients are never supposed to die, you know, even though people do. And so they are, they were not equipped for what it means to take care of someone who's dying because our system has almost gotten split up where palliative care, people take care of people who are dying. Everybody else pretends nobody dies. So I think it was, I mean, it was hard as a palliative care doctor, one of the hard, there was the problem of people not being able to be with their families and things like that. And the people who got infected, who didn't need to get infected, like I lost a patient who was vaccinated, but his granddaughter wasn't and she infected him. Because when you're 85, you can't count on the vaccine and you need your granddaughter to do the right thing. And he died. That's the kind of stuff that stressed me out. The attitudes, the anti-vax attitudes, really, you know, because I think there was a lot of those people who died didn't need to die. And that really bothers me. Welcome to August, the month my firstborn becomes an adult. <sighs> and in celebration of the anniversary of becoming a mother, I am gifting you free goodies that keep me looking young enough for at least a few people to kindly say that I don't look old enough to have four teenagers. Email stacy at realeverything.com and tell me which products you'd like to try. Here are a few I love. Mighty Plump, the brand new water cream that smells divine, heals your skin's moisture barrier over time with ceramides, and uses two forms of hyaluronic acid to provide an instant filler effect for anti-aging magic. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it for myself. Or Counter Time, the anti-aging line that has clinical studies proving it is as scientifically effective as retinol, but without any of the potential risks. And I've been using PD Counter's proprietary Retinatural Complex, which is in counter time for years, and literally say things like, I am turning into a raisin if I run out. Or Countermatch, the plant-derived line made for those of us with sensitive skin. The Intense Moisture Serum is a game changer for my dry, sensitive skin. Or try one of our award-winning, clinically proven anti-aging treatments, like the Reflect Effect AHA Smoothing Mask, the Overnight Resurfacing Peel, or Albright Sea Serum or Facial Oil. You choose, and I will personally send you a self-care kit with instructions for use. Just my way of saying thanks for being here all these years. And if you love anything, I'll help you find the best deals to treat yourself. You can email me at stacy at realeverything.com because Beauty Counter is raising up beauty. It's a little luxury that makes a positive impact on our health, for all of our collective communities through legislative change and giving back, as well as for the earth through sustainable manufacturing practices with fair trade ingredients. We're getting safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws, while also giving back to people and the planet as a certified B Corp. Go to beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth, just like any other website, and choose me, Stacey Toth, and code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth.
Yeah. I hear that. I imagine that any sort of medical space during the last few years was hard for anyone working in it. Like I just I have such empathy for medical professionals, especially teachers. I mean, we, you know, this is a complete side sidebar to go down that rabbit hole, but we've seen the changes that it's making to society in terms of people realizing, you know, what how they want to participate in their careers and in the world and all that kind of stuff. And I hope that it leads to community support for these important roles that we really did take for granted for a very long time. So, but I do want to get to something that I heard you say, which kind of sparked something for me as you were talking about when wearing a mask, it made communication that much harder. And I think one of the things that our brain is doing is perceiving body language. They Mm -hmm. say that body language is, I think, 80% of communication, right? So when I was talking about like arms crossing or, you know, you can see Mm -hmm. lens in their face if they're smiling with you, if they're actively listening versus if they're not Mm -hmm. actively listening, all these things. And one of the things that I had read about people who have had damage to their amygdala is that they tend to be impaired in recognizing those facial expressions, that they don't have the same ability to detect emotions in others, especially related to fear. And I just thought that was interesting as we, you know, we're talking about amygdala earlier and then you kind of came around to the mask thing. And I was like, yeah, because if our amygdala is properly functioning and it can detect those things and help our brain perceive, you know, what's coming at us, if we have damage to something, it's going to prevent all of that from happening. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that there's probably several other key areas of the brain involved in the facial recognition, I mean, expression recognition and body language, you know, recognition parts. I doubt that that it's just the amygdala. But like I said, I'm kind of an anti-wear person, as in where, the question where. I, you know, I just think where is not the most interesting question. How and why are more interesting questions to me because I'm not, you know, I'm not working at that at that level. I mean, there are people doing that and I think it's really important. But for what I do for the show I create, the higher level, you know, how and why questions are the ones that fascinate me. So we've talked a little bit about amygdala and neural pathways. Are there other areas of the brain that we haven't talked about that have been interesting to you, especially as you reflect on your work in the ER and in palliative care? Like what comes up for you? Let me just think a minute. I'm going to look at my little cheat sheet. Well, one issue that's is, you know, memory, right? Because memory is really important. I mean, and especially important, you know, in dealing with trauma because it turns out that memory is not as reliable as people think because it's not like a video recording. When it comes to 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 trauma that's happened to someone when they're very young, it's really easy for a therapist to accidentally instill false memories by suggestion, not necessarily intentional. I mean, Elizabeth Loftus' work has shown how easy it is to install false memories. And 
There's a very famous study that I mentioned in my book, Are You Sure? It's called the Challenger Study. I think it has flashbulb memory in the name of it. But anyway, um, it was done at the time of the Challenger disaster. Some psychologists you know, talked to a bunch of course students because that's what they like to do. And they asked them you know, to write down you know, what they were doing, how they felt and everything when they either saw or heard about the Challenger disaster. And then they, because that was one of those memories that everyone assumes will be very accurate. Okay, that's a, an idea. Flashbulb memory, very accurate. Well, they re-interviewed them a couple years later, and only about 25% of them gave accounts that matched what they had written. There was even one guy who said, he, he had a different uh, recollection from what he had written down, and he pointed at what he wrote down, and he said, I know that's what I wrote, but what I remember now is what really happened. And the reason for this is that the purpose of memory is not necessarily to be an accurate account. It's survival, right? So stuff gets added. And also, every time you remember something, your brain basically recreates the memory. It throws in new stuff. And you cannot tell the difference. You can't tell what got thrown in. This is a big problem for eyewitness testimony. In fact, if they took into account how memory really works, what they would really do is interview people right when something happens, record it, and never talk to them again. Because as soon as they start talking to other people, they start incorporating other people's experiences into their memory. And they can't, you can't tell the difference. Like, I'm old enough that the first really memorable event that happened in my life was the assassination of President Kennedy. And, you know, we spent all weekend watching TV and Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald on live TV. And I'm pretty sure that I saw that. But now I, now that I understand mem how memory works, I don't know if I did or not. I mean, I remembered seeing it, but whether I actually saw it live or just saw it later and remembered it as a thing that happened, I don't know. And that's why memoirs now, if you read memoirs, people are catching on to this and they write, you know, I realize that my memory of this is not perfect, but this is how I remember it. And, and the reason this matters is because think about all the feuds that people have over remembering events differently. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. And I have four children who I witness this happen with all the time. This is, it's so fascinating to me to think about all of the implications of this, like you said, you know, for crime, but also so many applications of how dependent we are on our memory, right? And we think that our memory is infallible. I am, my husband produces the podcast and right now he's like, yes, you think that you're 100% right all the time. And often I do have a more accurate memory than him, but I do know for sure that there are things that have changed for me or that like get gray for me. And then I think I fill in the blanks with stories that people tell me. And I know so many of us know that we do that, right? Like, like you were saying about seeing it on TV, but I think for a lot of us, it's like, I've heard this story so often. I actually remember it. It reminds me of this bizarre movie I saw. So I have an English degree in cultural criticism. And part of what that was watching a lot of weird movies and reading very weird books and kind of surmising them. And one of them was this movie called The Final Cut with Robin Williams. Have you ever heard of this movie? 
I don't know. I don't think so. So in the movie, people have like a the equivalent of a computer chip in their, let's say, eyes. But it's really like a brain recording of memories. And when they die, they review their final, like, and then they do like a memorial or whatever. And so what's interesting is in the movie, there are kind of key memories that people have about, you know, a dad taking someone fishing or witnessing a murder, like these very different things. And two people who witness the same thing, they play the videos side by side and the canoe is shaped differently and it's colored differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all these kinds of things and people have such a hard time like addressing and processing. And I know it's like a fiction movie, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. compare some of the science that we know now is happening in our brain to that's kind of how it's actually happening. Right. Right. And to make space for, for me, one of the things that I'm working on doing is reminding myself, like, everyone's perception of their own reality is valid. Like, it's not my job to say you're wrong, your memory is wrong, your belief is wrong, any of these things. Instead, to work on saying, like, I hear that is what you remember and I res- and I have my own memory that's different and both can be both of our feelings around both of these things can be true. It's not one or the other. And I think right. we have to learn that it's not just about the facts. It's also about the feelings. And when you were talking about pe- people arguing about things, about their beliefs or who's right or who's wrong or who's bad or who's good or all these things, like if we had a little more empathy for feelings that people are having versus like arguing about the color of the canoe, right? It, it changes how we would behave individually and as a society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I always like to leave listeners with something positive, something actionable that they can take forward today and do to improve their life in some sort of way. And I would Love to hear your ideas based on whether it's your work in the ER or in palliative care or in working with listeners on brain sense, or we haven't talked about it, but your podcast about coming out later in life. Like, what is something that someone can take after hearing us talk today and actually do something? Well, take a walk. <laughs> I mean, it's actually been shown that, you know, regular walking makes your hippocampus grow. And, you know, that's the memory part of your brain. So if you're concerned about your brain health, you know, the number one thing you can do is exercise. And it doesn't have to be anything crazy. It can be as simple as walking. And, you know, it's great for mood once you can get over the hump if you're a non-exerciser. That's a very simple, excellent idea. And listeners, if you're driving a car, don't don't take a walk now, but maybe schedule it into to your day. Park a little bit further away from where you were. Yes, such a good idea. Well, Dr. Campbell, Ginger, thank you so much for being here today. And listeners, if you'd like to keep in touch, I want to remind you, you can follow at brainsciencepodcast.com. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'd love to share a little handout with your listeners. I have a handout called Five Things You Need to Know About Your Brain. And you can get it at my website, brainsciencepodcast.com, or text the word brain science, all one word, to 55444. Brain science, all one word, to 55444. Now, that's the gift for signing up for my newsletter, but all that means is that you'll get a show, the show notes for the show every month. You won't be, you know, get any trickle email campaign things, just, and you can always unsubscribe. But once a month, I only do a show once a month. So I like to have people get the show notes automatically so they don't forget that it's out. But I'd like to share that with your listeners. And you can find Dr. Campbell's book, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty the show notes as well. I'll put a link there. Will they be able to find that as, at local booksellers or where could they find that book? Mostly on online. You can get it in paperback, but you do need to order it online like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those kind of places. Okay, great. So we'll put a link in the show notes for you there, listeners. And if you would prefer to get the shows delivered to your inbox ad-free, you can sign up patreon.com slash the whole view, which is a great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves. But so is leaving a review and hitting the follow or subscribe button in the podcast app that you're using so that others can find us as well. And as I mentioned, we put a list of resources in those show notes for you at realeverything.com. And I want to thank you listeners for tuning in today. We appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for being here. It was lovely to chat with you. Thank you, Stacy. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.